The following is an encore presentation of an Access Utah program first broadcasted on November 2013, but you can still respond to the program on Twitter or by email at upraxis at gmail.com. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest today is Nicholas Basbanes, author of a trilogy of uh, books on all things book-related, including A Gentle Madness. He's out with a new book, On Paper, The Everything of Its 2,000-Year History, in which he considers everything from paper's invention in China 2,000 years ago, which revolutionized human civilization, to its crucial role in the unfolding of historical events, from the American Revolution to the Pentagon Papers and Watergate. Basbane's writes of his travels to get to the source of the story, to China along the Burma Road, and to Japan, whose handmade paper washi is as much an expression of the human spirit as it is of craftsmanship, to Landover, Maryland, home of the National Security Agency, and many other places. And Nicholas Basbane's uh, joins the program. Welcome. Thank you, Tom. Great pleasure to be on your program with you. So very interesting. You uh, write in your preface that uh, for a man who's written on books and book culture, uh, it's not surprising that you would turn to uh, paper. It seems seemed to make sense. Uh, you mentioned the trilogy of books. Uh, uh, there was that to begin, but I've written five others prior to this. So there have been eight books altogether on just every conceivable aspect of books and book culture from bibliomania, as you mentioned, and the general madness, the passion to possess books, up to and including biblioclasm, which is the deliberate destruction of books as a way of destroying cultures. And I've considered the future of libraries, and I've I had a book, every book it's a reader on. I put together a dream team of readers. It just seemed, it just seemed like the logical next step to consider the stuff of transmission itself for for what we here in the West certainly for the past six or seven hundred years has been our principal medium of transmission, which is paper, or much longer, in other parts of the world. So it just it's kind of made sense, but once I got started, as you pointed out in your very good introduction, might I say, very comprehensive, uh, just took, took just took on uh, every imaginable kind of uh, concept. I'm sure your listeners are wondering, what in the world is he doing on the National Security Agency? You know, I'm, I'm <laughs> sure right. we're going to get to that well, presently. But, yes, uh, yes, definitely. Uh, very... uh, again, it was an everything approach. I, I can't purport or pretend that it is everything about the history of paper, but my mindset was uh, it's in play if it's a great story and if it really pertains to this idea, this concept of paper that I that I just spent eight years, by the way, working on. Wow. Uh, so the, this, uh, on, on the cover of this, uh, of the book, um, it's, uh, you have the title and then it's By a Self-Confessed Bibliophiliac. <laughs> Isn't that great? Uh, I have to credit my editor at Knopf, uh, Victoria Wilson, uh, with coming up with that word, uh, we believe it's a manufactured word, but you know, no, it's it's a it's a, a fool's errand to say we invented a word. But uh, she said, "Are you a bibliomaniac or are you a bibliophile?" And I said, "Well, my wife seems to think I'm at risk of uh, being the bibliomaniac who is the slave of his books, as opposed to the bibliophile who's the master." Uh, so she put me uh, right kind of in the middle of bibliophiliac, and it's kind of a catchy, fun expression. But but it is the uh, the underpinning of the book. I, I come to the task with a great, profound, and abiding love for books and book culture, and really it was because of this this extraordinary material upon which not only have we. Uh, uh, written our, our our text, but we've preserved our history. History. We we uh, we devise all sorts of uh, formulas and scientific equations. It, it uh, it's just an extraordinary medium. So it was really that uh, to try and get to the source of that that uh, that provided the genesis of this book. I'd like to uh, begin maybe at the end, and uh, you, uh, you you talk. We have a chapter called "At the Crossroads," uh, and I, w- I was curious uh, going into this. What you think about the future of paper in in a, in a very digital world? It's becoming a digital world. I'm thinking about meetings that I attend nowadays where nobody has paper; they're all on their computers. Um, so, as a person who loves books, you know, the physical, actual book, and, and of course, you've you've uh, spent several years here thinking about this extraordinary medium, paper. What do you right. think about the future of paper in today's digital world? Well, it was one of the reasons I, one of the hooks, you know, we, we, uh, when I started this, this thing, it was, we had just entered the 21st century and the third millennium and people everywhere are talking about the imminence of the paperless society. 
And of course, I'm a book guy, and I I'm no fool. I don't have my head buried in the sand. I can see the direction where where a lot of this is going, and certainly a lot of people are reading their books today uh, digitally. And if you want to call it ironic, I mean the the uh, Kindle and Nook editions of on paper are selling rather well too. So there are people who are getting this electronic electronically, and I'm delighted about that. But I also point out, and I point this out very early in the book, that there are an estimated twenty thousand identifiable commercial uses of paper in the world today. 20,000, you know, I, I don't pretend to, to try and uh, itemize all of them in the book, but just to give you an idea of the, of the versatility and the functionality of this medium. When people suggest that we are about to go into a paperless society, I, I say that's a preposterous suggestion. Yes, certainly books. Uh, as time goes on, books are, are going to come more and more our way electronically. Newspapers, we all know the way that's going. Record keeping and the government, absolutely. Uh, you know, it wasn't so long ago in the 1960s or so, the, the New York Stock Exchange had to close down for a day once a week just to catch up with the paperwork because every transaction was done on paper. Was that a good thing to get away from that? I certainly think so. You know, how many people look up telephone numbers in phone books anymore? You go to paper maps. You know, uh, so uh, it's not a bad thing the way we're going. But I just think that there are so many other other aspects of this material, this extraordinary invented material, and I, I really like to make that point. Uh, paper was not inevitable. The Chinese came up with something 2,000 years ago, and it took perception. It really, they really, it's a process that involves taking any vegetative source, pounding it into a pulp, suspending it in water, and passing it through a sieve, the resulting film being a sheet of paper. I mean, that was really extraordinary. Once learned, uh, the rudiments became uh, uh, picked up everywhere, uh, everywhere it went, but it had to really be understood. It's a remarkable thing. And uh, it continues to be uh, this this remarkable material. And I tried to get at that uh, in the book. And I also, as you pointed out in, in your opening, uh, I was really vastly interested in the cultural aspects of paper. We'll get into all of those, of course. Uh, uh, just a parenthetical uh, a remark you you write uh, Riley kind of kind of funny aside there's a British Association of Paper Historians I didn't know this and and that's the source they they that's talk the about the twenty thousand commercial yeah. uses and uh, you say and they proclaim they they'll tell you about every last one of them and then you <laughs> they're, say they're certainly interested in every last one of them yeah. <laughs> and you say dear reader I'm not going to go into the, the whole twenty thousand <laughs> really but trust me on this we're not going to go through every one uh, it's not an encyclopedia but uh, I do take uh, an encyclopedic uh, approach, but you know some of the fun chapters here were uh, I have to think of one off the top fiery consequences you know the the influence of the paper cartridge in the course of military history uh, for two hundred years i mean uh, for four hundred years the 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 uh, the musket and the rifle that was a single shot weapon and and in the beginning you loaded uh, you loaded your projectile in there and you tamped uh, your gunpowder in there and you fired it, and it took a minute or so to reload. But the introduction of the paper cartridge in, in the 1630s during the 30, year, 30 Years' War revolutionized this. And for 200 years, this was the means of loading a weapon. And you went from 42 steps to load down to 26. And, and as astonishing as that is, in 1857, the Sepoy Butiny in India was was sparked by the refusal of of uh, mercenary troops in the employ of the British East India Company to bite open with their teeth because that was the prescribed manner of opening these cartridges uh, cartridges these cartridges that had been greased with either tallow or lard you know when you consider that all of the troops were either Muslim or Hindu uh, for Hindus uh, tallow uh, is derived from cows, which are sacred, or, or Muslims, uh, is derived from lard, which is uh, from pigs, which is repugnant. You had a problem on your hands, and it in fact led to the Sepoy Mutiny, which ultimately led to Indian independence. So that's a paper story, you know. And, and I have to say, I was always looking for where's the paper. You remember that that where's Waldo cartoon thing? Where's Waldo in the story? I was always looking for paper, you know, in human flight. The very first uh, apparatus to take flight in the 1700s was made with uh, the skin was made with multiple layers of paper from the Montgolfier family paper mill. And uh, so there's the, the very first uh, uh, apparatus to take humans aloft. There's, a, there's another there's a paper story for you. And it was just kind of fun. And it was really uh, thrilling to, tr to find them every so often. And to go back to your earlier question about the paperless society, I don't think I fully answered it. Uh, uh, 
I, I, I believe that paper remains the extraordinary medium of preservation, by the way. We have been writing for 5,000 years as a human species, and it goes back to 3,000 B.C. in Mesopotamia on baked clay tablets. We've used everything, stone, metal, bamboo, silk. For the first time in the history of civilization, we now read through the, we have to have a machine, an interface, a software. You know, prior to this, what you, all, all you really needed was a facility to read the language in which the material was written down. And I'm really concerned about that. You know, I've handled the Gutenberg Bible, one of the great experiences of my life, and that was printed in the 1450s, right? That's more than 500 years ago. It was an exquisite condition. All I really needed to read that is the ability to read Latin, right? But if something that's born digital today, uh, you know, 12-inch discs, they aren't with us, punched cards, 5-inch discs, uh, the software, the, the systems change almost on a yearly basis. Are we confident today that material that is born digital will be with us 100 years from now, 200 years from now, 500 years from now? You know, I'm not so sure. So it still remains a great pr 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 medium for preservation. And at the National Archives, which I also visited for this book, spent today with the National Archivist, they are the custodians of 80 billion pieces of paper. You know, it's 17 facilities all over the United States. When something is really important, regardless of how it was created, they still make a paper copy. And uh, aside from that, just the, you know, you, you handled the Gutenberg Bible. Just the what a joy! I the, mean, the pleasure I, I, of I handling something. Collapsed with, with yeah, it. it was quite an experience. But go ahead, I'm sorry. Uh, uh, so just the, the pleasure of handling something, uh, you know, touching. Uh, you know, it's 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 not a removed experience, as you're saying. Well, I have written earlier. You know, what what, what a trying to understand why people go crazy about books. You know, book collectors. We really are a strange species. But what is it about a? a printed object or a beautifully calligraphed object or something that's bound exquisitely on beautiful paper. And there is a, a tactility there. It really does engage all the senses. I mean, people who love books see a, a gorgeous book. They pick it up. They sniff it. They feel it. Uh, I mean, there are, are sensual aspects to it. And uh, you don't get that tactile uh, experience, do you, from a, an electronic medium? So there is that. You know, and I've written about it, and no question about it. I love to read my books in paper, hard copies. I, uh, you know, and I schlep on a trip like this. I, got, I schlep at least two two hardcover books, one for the trip out and one back, you know, at least. And depending how long I'm going to be here, another one to read while I'm here. So uh, I, I realize the electronic device is a lot more uh, economical for that, but uh, uh, some of us uh, really abide by the old ways. Yeah, besides which, I imagine if someone who's loved your books looked over next to you on a plane and saw you with a Kindle, there'd be some, you know, there'd, <laughs> there'd be some disconnect. There. Well, I have an iPad, you know. Uh, I mean, okay. I'm, I'm, so I, I certainly, you know, I'm not a total Luddite, I have to yeah. say. I, I mean, I do write on computers, and I use digital voice recorders, and I, I, I'm into the digital. I've been taking digital photographs for over 10 years, and, and it has not only become a source of taking pictures that you can use in your work, but it's a... It's a it's a tool that you use in your research. I mean, back in the day, you used to take very careful notes of something. Now you can just take a digital photograph of it. You've got a precise copy. It doesn't take much time. You download it. You look at it. I mean, so I mean, I certainly use the tools that are available to me. Uh, you know, I also like to point out that the uh, we talk about how paper uh, succeeded papyrus. We don't have to get into the differences between the two, but the two are really the only relationship between the two is that they share a name. The word paper comes from papyrus, but paper is a compound. Papyrus is a lamination of strips of one very specific marsh reed uh, that grew in Egypt and and, uh, and it really could not be made outside of that region of the world. But but the two coexisted for about a thousand years. You know, there was paper, there was papyrus, there was also parchment, which is derived from animal skin. You had three different recording media uh, competing uh, for, for a period of time. So even though we have the advent of the, uh, the electronic revolution, the computer, which has been extraordinary, one doesn't necessarily mean that the other is going to go immediately out of fashion or not have any functionality at all. We're talking with Nicholas Basbins uh, on the program today, author of several books uh, on, on books including A Gentle Madness, Bibliophiles, Bibliomanes, and the Eternal Passion for Books. His new book is On Paper, The Everything of Its 2,000-Year History. 
And he uh, takes us from its invention in China. We'll uh, go there in the next segment uh, to uh, Japan, of course, uh, where it's it's an art. And uh, and people who make paper are national treasures. Uh, We'll uh, go to Landover, Maryland, home of the National Security Agency. And following a break, I'll ask uh, Mr. Basbane's about this idea of virtual. We, we think that, and that uh, Mr. Basbins has written, that uh, this idea of uh, virtuality, which he defines as an alternative existence that's not just a copy but a substitute for the real thing as an invention of modern times, he says not so, and paper is involved in the virtual world as well. More following break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Utah Festival, Opera and Musical Theater in Logan, Utah, Presenting Eight Hands, Two Pianos, July 9th at 1 p.m. Featuring four pianists in an afternoon of personality and artistry, costumes, jokes, and piano. Information at utahfestival.org. This is Bill McLaughlin inviting you to come exploring with me. We're going to go treasure hunting in the Lincoln Center Library. We're hoping to find wonderful music that's just been lying unheard on those shelves for way too long. We're going to take that stuff out into the sunshine. Tuneful, romantic, creative music. That's American Masters, this week on Exploring Music. Weekday afternoons at 1 and Monday through Thursday night at 9 on Utah Public Radio. The following is an encore presentation of an Access Utah program first broadcasted on November 2013. But you can still respond to the program on Twitter or by email at upraxis at gmail.com. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. My guest today is Nicholas Basbanes, author of many books on all things book-related, including A Gentle Madness. His new book is On Paper, the everything of its 2,000-year history, in which he considers everything from paper's invention in China 2,000 years ago, which revolutionized human civilization to its crucial role in the unfolding of historical events, from the American Revolution to the Pentagon Papers and Watergate, And very interestingly, he writes about his travels to get to the source of the story, to China, to Japan, to Landover, Maryland, home of the NSA, to the Crane Paper Mill of Dalton, Massachusetts. It's a family-owned enterprise, which is the exclusive supplier of paper for American currency. We'll talk about that a little bit later as well. And the Kimberly Clark Mill in New Milford, Connecticut. Uh, Here is what Aaron says by email. I love this guy. Can't wait to read his book. Thanks for the great show today. So thanks, Aaron. Nicholas Basbins, I, I was very interested to uh, to read uh, about this idea of virtual. Uh, we think that that is an invention of the uh, today's computer age. Uh, virtual meaning an alternative existence, not just a copy, but a substitute for the real thing. You say that that's it's not a new thing. Well, I, I think whenever whenever you create an image of something on a, on a surface, whether it be on a computer screen or on a, or on a uh, a stone wall in the ice age or or on a piece of paper uh, you're creating a surrogate and I, I give you a couple of examples where uh, for instance uh, Jacques Carre's drawings of the of the Parthenon in the 17 uh, in the 1600s just seven years before Venetian gunners really reduced much of this ex- exquisite temple to rubble uh, the only the only view of, that we have of this of this wonder this world wonder of the ancient world as it probably appeared when it was built is on this paper represent these paper representations that he made and not long after the the, the bombardment Lord Elgin of England took uh, removed the these exquisite uh, sculptures and brought them to England where they still reside but if you really want to see what the Parthenon looked like you know when when it was built uh, in the fifth century Century BC. Well, you have these paper representations, and you could say the same thing for Old St. Paul's Cathedral, which was destroyed in the Great Fire of London in 1636. There was a an antiquarian by the name of William Dugdale, who was really being pressed by his colleagues to go out because there was all this uh, movement going on in England. There was uh, the monasteries and the churches were being abandoned and ignored and they were falling into ruin so he wanted wanted to go out and document as much as he could and in this particular instance this remarkable cathedral he totally documented it with paper with uh, with uh, old charters and rolls that had been preserved and with the 
the assistance, the collaboration of Wenceslas Haller, who was really the outstanding draftsman of the age, they created these images which you find nowhere else. So is that a virtual reality? I, th- I, think, I think it can be argued. And in that same chapter where I introduce those two examples, I follow, I trace the, the evolution of architecture and engineering as more far- formalized disciplines where you start to see drawing and uh, writing with, uh, to scale where instruments are being developed to give very precisely rendered representations. You couldn't have done any of this without paper. That's, again, the sub-story. You know, how, how, why did it take uh, over 100 years, 150 years or so, to build some of these great cathedrals in medieval times? Uh, they more or less did it on the fly. They had templates, and they, they uh, adapted as they went along. They, they undoubtedly drew on the ground or in stone. But paper revolutionized all of this, and you could sub- subcontract things. Just imagine trying to make a locomotive, you know. I mean, uh, you have to have uh, draw- drawings and representations. Some guys are working on the wheels. Other guys are working on the boilers. I mean, there are mi- a million parts, and everything has to come together precisely, doesn't it? Uh, how could you possibly do that without paper? I, I mean, I've asked this question of, uh, of uh, historians of engineering and of architecture, and they say, you know, we never really thought of it quite like that, but you're absolutely right. You think of Leonardo da Vinci. I have a chapter in there on, on paper as a, as a tool, as an instrument of the creative process, where it goes beyond just being a medium, but actually an instrument where, you, where these ideas begin as, as nonverbal sparks in the brain, and they're transferred from the mind through the eye and the hand onto a sheet of paper. Uh, Martin Kemp, the great, great Leonardo scholar who I interviewed for this book, I asked him the very same question. Could any of this been possible without paper? He said his, his answer was categorical. Absolutely not. It couldn't be. And then I, I examined Beethoven and Thomas Edison, all of whom wrote and, and, and uh, sketched things out profusely. Edison has 3,500 notebooks in New Jersey. I went to see a few of them and uh, went everywhere, really. I'm, I'm an old newspaper guy. You know, I, I, I feel I have to go where the story is and to see how it all pulls together in this, in this narrative. I wonder what the impulse is. To, of course, we want to communicate. We can, can, can communicate uh, verbally. But I, I think about when I go to write in my journal, I'm communicating differently. I'm, I'm expecting that this will be read years and years, and, well, and probably ready? after you know, I'm gone. I, I wonder. You know, that's a good question. I, we should consider that. Do you think that you're really expecting that it will be read years from now, or, or are you writing for yourself? Probably so. I'm sorry, I interrupted, but I, I, I would like to think about that. Continue, please. I'm, I'm... Uh, yeah, I'm probably doing both. I'm guessing I'm doing both, but I, I definitely have in mind uh, that at least I would like this to be read after my death. So you're taking care then to write it very carefully? Yeah. You're, you're putting yeah. your best foot forward? Right. You're explaining yourself, perhaps, maybe in areas where you think explanations are necessary. Mm-hmm. And that, that's, another, uh, that's another development that came, by the way, the... Uh, as you mentioned earlier, paper was invented in China, and it really followed a very methodical path about the globe, which was fascinating for me. Part one of my book follows the migration, you know, from China to Korea and Japan going in that direction and along the Silk Road into Central Asia and then to the Middle East and from the Middle East into Europe. And we have dates precisely. We know when, when these things arrived there. When it got into the Middle East, uh, which was the center of of papermaking for 500 years, this whole concept of notation began. I mean, nobody really took notes before. The whole idea of the of the bureaucracy, the Ottoman bureaucracy, uh, was aided to a great extent by the ability to have paper to record all of the details of, of bureaucratic life. But, uh, you know, I think notebooks really kind of began, journals, because of the availability of this medium. I, you wouldn't have been writing it on parchment you know, parchment is derived from the skins of uh, sheep, and, ve- and vellum comes from uh, calves. Uh, it's estimated that if Gutenberg had printed all of his Bibles on parchment, and he did some of them, the one I, I handled is on paper, but the one at the Library of Congress is on is on parchment, uh, it, it would have taken 260 sheep to make one Bible, the skins of 260 sheep. to make. So would Gutenberg have introduced movable metal type in the 1450s if paper hadn't been introduced into Germany just 60 or so years earlier? The first paper mill in Germany was 1390. Uh, uh, I don't know if that's responsive to your original question about notation, but yeah. these things developed 
because of this availability of stuff. And people started thinking differently. Notation as an aid, as an aid to uh, to thinking, to retaining stuff. Memory was regarded as, by Socrates uh, as as the, the 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 great tool of the of the, of the intellect. He he disdained writing things down because they just didn't do it in that day. So memory, but then all of it, then they continue to write things down. We get notation, and we get these notebooks, which people like yourself do enter into doing because you do want to have this record of your life and of your your thoughts on certain things. And it is fascinating. And there have been many, many wonderful studies uh, written about uh, this whole whole concept of journal keeping and diaries. And I I touch rather lightly on that. I do give you the citations for for where you can find more information on these things. But it is is a fascinating subject wholly unto itself. And I I think people write differently when they're writing on on the computer, you know, a lot of, I mean, there's there's complaint at least from a lot of people who, who uh, w- would like to take us back to letter writing and as opposed to say, a quick email or a, or a tweet. Yeah, well, it's a little more hasty, isn't it? It's uh, I think when you're writing something down, there is a permanence to it. When you tweet something or you send an email, uh, it goes, and uh, if it's preserved, uh, maybe. If it's not, so what. Uh, and that and that is one of the downsides, I think, of this. Uh, this I'm not the first, by any means the first person to suggest this, but where where are the where are the great letters, uh, you know, uh, going to be written in the future? Uh, what a, what a source of it, of historical information they have been. These archives of letters and as, of diaries and of journals. Are people going to continue to do that? I don't know, and if or if they do them electronically, will they be preserved? You know, I'm worried about the stuff I wrote on my first computer years ago. How can I get at it? You know, it was on f- five and a half inch discs, different operating system. You know, I have I have material that it would be, really be uh, tremendously challenging for me to try and access, and I just wonder, you know. Uh, Sometimes the simpler way is the is the one that makes the most sense. But you know, with everything, we'll see. It's interesting to talk about uh, permanence, and uh, uh, I don't know. You know, sometimes it feels like anything that you put out there on the internet is going to be there forever. But but you never know. I wonder if you could tell us about your trip to Landover, Maryland, uh, NSA. You say that one hundred million documents are pulped. <laughs> yeah, really. Well, that's the, that that's kind of the way I. I you know, there are 18 chapters in the book, and one thing I try to do in every one is to have a really a terrific story in there to illustrate the basic theme. So the NSA, you know, I, I, we could ask listeners who haven't read the book to, to guess what that chapter is about. I don't think it, and one, and one of them would come up with the whole idea of uh, recycling, you know, of uh, uh, where, what do we do? What do we do with paper when we're done with it? Because while on the one hand, you know, we talk about books that have survived for hundreds of years, the intention there was to to achieve permanence. But one of the extraordinary aspects of paper is its functionality. It's also made to to be ephemeral for for uses that are very short term. And so at the NSA, I learned uh, they pulp and they have a commercial level pulping plant in there. Uh, uh, an estimated 100 million, you just call them top secret, I think doesn't do it justice, you know, ultra high secret uh, documents a year in this pulping plant. They turn it into low-grade commercial pulp, which is then sold uh, to uh, industrial paper makers. Uh, Weyerhaeuser Corporation had the contract when I was uh, uh, finally allowed after seven months of asking to get in there and to see this uh, to Weyerhaeuser, which in turn takes this pulp and turns it into pizza boxes and egg cartons and low-grade, <coughs> pardon me, co- commercial purposes. Uh, it was really quite astonishing to to go there and to see this. Uh, we've all have this image of these these four uh, oh, opaque glass. Buildings there with, uh, with where all whatever is going on in there is going on, but they have these 56 uh, drop shoots, these huge uh, pipes, uh, pneumatically driven pipes that go beneath the ground, and they all go to this the central receiving area where you, where the it is all processed in one huge hopper and reduced to a pulp. And additionally to what's uh, done at the NSA, they bring material in from all of the other intelligence agencies in the D.C. area, probably 30, 32 of them. And when I was there, they were lined up. Uh, it was really surreal. I mean, these unmarked, they looked to all intents and purposes like their regular commercial garbage trucks, but they were unmarked and they were backed up. We had to stop. Uh, 
There was material being unloaded. But all of this paperwork, you think this agency is all about electronics? Well, they work. They, they, the NSA, it has been reported, employs more mathematicians than any other organization in the world. And how are they doing uh, whatever it is they do, breaking codes, tinkering with stuff? They're doing it on paper. They're, they're sketching it out, and then when they're done with it, it goes into a burn bag, which goes into a chute and goes out to this this uh, this plant, which I was allowed to tour. It was really quite a. Uh, and at the end of the at the end of the t- the trip, you talk about you know, a surreal experience begetting another one. Uh, I, I got as a little memento of my visit, a little uh, plastic baggie with some of the pulp in it and a little medallion of the NSA. And I said, boy, this one goes into my cabinet of curiosities as a collectible item. But it was quite an interesting. But, but, the, but the larger S, uh, theme of that chapter was recycling. This paper really does have a, 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 a more lives than one. You know, it's used when its purpose is uh, discontinued, you don't necessarily have to burn it. You don't burn it at all. You can recycle it. Uh, and that's why I went to this plant in New Jersey, the Markel plant, where uh, most of that uh, office material that comes from Manhattan goes into those blue office bins. All of that clean office waste goes out there and becomes uh, bathroom tissue for the most part. They produce a million rolls a day out there. The Kimberly Clark Mill you mentioned earlier in New Milford, Connecticut, that's that's uh, where they produce about a million boxes of Kleenex a day, and an, and another another machine, a million rolls of Scott paper towels. So I really did take an everything approach. I really did want to look at paper, where the functionality can go from just a few seconds, shall we say, if you're thinking hygienically, all the way up to paper which can last hundreds of years. Uh, and and everything in between. And that's one of the remarkable aspects of paper. If it's made well, it can last hundreds of years. If it's made well, it can serve other purposes. The one of the companies that I visited in the chapter you mentioned at the at the at the crossroads chapter towards the end, uh, they make they make paper for one thousand different commercial uh uses. That's the Glatfelter Mill in Pennsylvania. They make, by their estimate, 85% of the paper for tea bags, 75 or 80% of the paper for postage stamps. Uh, they make a, a, a major portion of the paper for Hallmark greeting cards, wrappers for uh, Reese's peanut butter cups, labels for Heineken beer. Uh, they have found, and that this company has been able to prosper when other companies were, have, were having to contract. Uh, Gladfelter was rethinking its purpose. They said there are niche markets out there if we try to compete with the big guys, now their their sales are at 1.6 billion a year. Now that sounds like a lot of money. It's certainly a lot to me, but when you compare it to international paper, which is 26 billion dollars a year, they're small players. They probably would have died had they not decided to diversify and to establish niche, niches for themselves. And I think it goes back to your question: the the paperless society. Well, I don't think so. Maybe in certain areas. But this is not about to disappear anytime soon. Yeah, so ubiquitous. We 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 do take it for granted, don't we? And and a good example is the you know, hygiene would be totally different. Well, I can't. I, I argue. I don't know if there have been any studies, but you ask uh, you ask anyone on the street well, what what items they would regard as essential to daily life. I, I would bet that this would be in the top five. You know, and there was a cute little story I found out about and researched it, but in 1973, Johnny Carson, in one of his monologues, had heard, had read an, a wire service story, turned out to be erroneous, but there was a toilet paper shortage. There was going to be a toilet paper shortage. There was a buying frenzy that swept the nation for the next couple of weeks. It occasioned front-page coverage in the New York Times, and it came at a time right after we'd had gasoline shortages. People were having these, these uh, shortage anxiety attacks. And of course, this was just another another thing that they thought. Oh my goodness, uh, we better stockpile the, the material. But uh, I can't many people can't think of very many people. There's a wonderful quote by a, uh, a historian of libraries named Jesse Scherer. I use this quote as one of the epigraphs to one of the chapter. He said, "The paperless society is about as probable as the paperless bathroom." And I, I thought that was a pretty good quote to use for one of the chapters. Nicholas Basbanes is our guest today. Uh, he's author most recently of On Paper, the everything of its 2,000-year history. We're going to take another brief break. When we come back, I want to have Nicholas Basbanes take us back to the beginning. Invention in China, which he said earlier in the program uh, it was not inevitable. 
and uh, take us forward then to uh, 9-11. There's some very impactful passages in this book about uh, Paper's relationship to 9-11, especially a, a, a document, a paper, fluttered down from the 84th floor, I think of the South Tower. We'll have him tell that story when we come back. Following a break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan, open Monday through Saturday until 3, offering plattered cookies and brownies, sandwiches, and boxed lunches. Information at crumbbrothers.com. BBC. BBC. Hello, I'm Ros Atkins. Welcome to World Have Your Say. Coming up on Outlook after the news, the Somali journalist who witnessed the murder of his boss. Hello, I'm Steve Evans. Welcome to Business Daily. Coming up, the big fight. This is Owen Bennett-Jones with NewsHour. The BBC is your gateway to the world, and this is your BBC station. Monday through Saturday afternoons at 3 on Utah Public Radio. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Hope you're enjoying this encore presentation of a conversation from November with uh, writer Nicholas Basbanes. Uh, even though this is a repeat broadcast, we're inviting you to participate and uh, by uh, going to our email, upraxcess at gmail.com, or uh, we are on Twitter at Utah Public Radio. We have this email from Dave in Cache Valley. He says, I'm wondering where your guest is from. I detect what I think is a Massachusetts accent. Well, Dave, you're right on. Uh, Nicholas Basbanes, according to his website, nicholasbasbanes.com, is a native of Lowell, Massachusetts, graduated from Bates College, and he uh, currently lives in North Grafton, Massachusetts. Keep those comments coming at upraxis at gmail.com, on Twitter at Utah Public Radio. Now here's more of my conversation from November with Nicholas Basbanes. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest for the hour today is Nicholas Basbanes, author most recently of On Paper, the everything of its 2,000-year history, in which he considers everything from paper's invention in China 2,000 years ago, which revolutionized human civilization to its crucial role in the unfolding of historical events, uh, for from the American Revolution to the Pentagon Papers and Watergate, and he writes of his travels to get to the source of the story, to China, along the Burma Road, to Japan, to Landover, Maryland, home of the NSA. We've talked about that. We've also talked about his trip to the Kimberly-Clark Mill in New Milford, Connecticut. Uh, if we have time, we'll get to the Crane Paper Mill of Dalton, Massachusetts, where uh, they, they supply paper for American currency since 1879. And we'll get to 9-11 as we go along as well. Nicholas Basbanes, I wonder if you'd take us back to the beginning um, the invention in China, you say this was not inevitable. How did this happen? Well, uh, the Chinese regard paper as one of their four outstanding inventions of antiquity. They rank it right up there with printing. They did printing before we did it in the West by 500 years on woodblocks, uh, gunpowder, and the magnetic compass. Uh, they even have a year, 105 A.D., probably, undoubtedly, was... Uh, developed over a few hundred years prior to that, but in 105 A.D., a man named Kai Lun uh, introduced and articulated at court, the, at the imperial court, the processes, the process for papermaking, and it hasn't changed fundamentally in all of the years that have passed. As I said earlier, you take any vegetative source, they also used frayed fishnets, uh, old cloth, uh, hemp from old ropes, they pounded it all together into a pulp. They suspended it they, uh, uh, in water and passed it through a sieve, what we would uh, a sieve, what we would call a mold, a screen mold, and that hasn't changed. And when it dries through this miracle of, of chemistry, which we now call uh, uh, hydrogen bonding, the the, the ability of, of uh, hydrogen and oxygen atoms in cellulose, it has to be in cellulose, to attach to each other when it's reduced to a pulp. I don't want to get too technical with it, but that really is not something that would have happened inevitably. Somebody had to have the perception to see the possibilities. How that happened, who can say? Maybe maybe someone saw some coagulating plant matter by the side of a stream and said, well, you know what, maybe we can do something here. 
but it was not inevitable. And once it was introduced and when people saw the possibilities, you know, we talk about its use for paper and for writing and recording, but the Chinese used it for everything. And we mentioned currency. I mean, uh, Marco Polo came back in the 13th century and he was astonished. Of course, he saw paper, but he saw paper being used as currency. You know, this is uh, how many hundreds of years before uh, we in the West started to adapt it. It was, again, uh, that's another surrogate, isn't it? Another surrogate for the real thing. It's valuable only because we, we say it's valuable. We accept it, it as being valuable. I'll just say briefly that paper is the only manufactured product that I can think of that gets value strictly and totally by virtue of the intellectual construct that you place upon it. I have a chapter, Face Value, where you go from a $100 trillion Zimbabwean banknote that I bought online for 50 cents and probably overpaid, you know, all the way up to a Raphael drawing on paper, one sheet of paper that sold recently within the last few years for $48 million. Now, what makes one piece of paper worth $48 million? Something that we put on it that we ascribe as being valuable. Well, I wanted to go to the source. I wanted to see where paper was invented. And fortunately, there are still parts of China where paper is continues to be made by hand in little villages by in almost precisely the same way ways that it was done when it was orig- uh, when it originated there. And I went with a very small group of historians. And for three weeks, we traveled from one village to the next, as you say, along the Burma Road in Yunnan Province, also in Sichuan Province. And we, we found about 20 different papermakers, and I write about them in the opening chapter. And really kind of got, set the mode and the tone, I think, for this book that would then go on to explore uh, every conceivable aspect of paper. Uh, I wonder if you talk a bit about Japan. Uh, handmade paper, very important there, and uh, as an expression of human spirit. Well, Again, paper comes to Japan about uh, in the 6th century, uh, as with many things, and I write about this. This is not a, a product that the Japanese uh, invented themselves, but like, and we continue to see it today, they t- they'll take a concept or a product, and they'll improve it, and they'll embrace it, and they'll make it their own. But in Japan, uh, paper became a symbol of purity. It's a, the, the, it's a, we, we, you talk about the washi paper, they call washi. That's made from the inner bark of the kozo, uh, of the branches of the kozo, the paper mulberry tree, they call it kozo. It's called bast. It's a one-syllable word, but you take that soft, fibrous material from inside the bark and you pound it into a pulp, and it's just... It's just it's it's pure. It's white. It's it's uh, in fact the word for paper and God uh, is the same. Kami. It's, uh, uh, I visited a t- a temple to the goddess of paper making in the city of Echizen, Japan. I went there. She is said to be the individual who taught the fundamentals to the Japanese people. She is revered today as such. And while I was there, the, the real purpose of that visit was to go spend a day with Ichibei Iwano the ninth, the ninth member of his family to be a master paper maker. He is a living national treasure. He has been designated a living national treasure paper maker. This is because this is viewed making paper by hand in the traditional manner is considered to be a vanishing skill, so it has been designated. And he is the son of Japan's first living national treasure paper maker, and his uh, his son, uh, who works with him, uh, will ultimately be the tenth. And he, I said, what makes a great sheet of paper? And he said, I, I make the paper the same way the goddess did. You know, and again, it's, a, it's original methods, it's purity. Uh, he was on his hands and knees with his son in a room called the water room when I arrived. And they were cleaning the specks of bark by hand off these fibers, these white fibers that would be transformed into paper just so it would be this perfect, luxurious material. I've got some examples, and I plan to frame one just as a sheet of paper. It's so exquisitely beautiful and very strong. This fiber is also, these are long fibers, so they're known also for their strength and their durability, and they will it will last for centuries. So it seems like a good idea to, to, to focus on the Japanese experience with paper, and I devote a whole chapter to that. We uh, just have a few minutes left in the program. I want to end where you do. Uh, 9-11, September 11th, uh, 2001, an intersection of uh, paper and uh, and that, of course, tragic event in, in our history. I, I want to start with uh, a photograph. There's uh, streets lined with or littered with paper, and a man has picked up evidently one of these pieces of paper. He's he's reading it. He's he's stopped in the middle of the street. He's he's looking at it anyway. 
And I guess you could, uh, you know, who knows uh, what's on the paper, but uh, one thing I guess you could... Uh, it could be anything, actually. could, could be anything. That picture resonates so much for me. And uh, yeah. undoubtedly, like everyone else, he's in total shock. And when you think, and this struck me, I have to say, all of my books begin with an image. This was the image, not that particular photograph, but that image of all that paper, all that paper spewing out of those two buildings as they crumbled horribly, terrifyingly to the ground and became actually the only artifacts of any significance, remarkably, to survive that catastrophe. The new museum, the 9-11 Memorial Museum, which I've been working with now for the last four years, and I've wanted to find out what kind of archaeology, if you want to use a word, has been done to to uh, examine the paper that survived, that came out of those buildings by the ton. And I have a few examples, and we go from the mundane uh, to a few extraordinary examples, the one you mentioned, the, what we call the 84th floor document. And it's the, the chain of custody on that is, is perfect, by the way. There's no question there was a woman evacuating the scene. A piece of paper flooded to the ground. She picked it up. She looked at it. She gave it to a guard at the Federal Reserve Bank, who then looked at it himself as the South Tower collapsed. And what it says on it is 84th floor, uh, northwest side, 12 people trapped. No name, no sign, no signature. And that was more or less the epicenter of where that United Airlines flight struck. It hit on the 81st, 82nd floor. The presumption was everybody died instantly. And that section, well, here's a document that said at least 12 people survived. So uh, I guess that piece of paper speaks eloquently for all of the 3,000 innocent victims. It's a piece of common Vaughn paper with a message. But when I first learned about it in 2009, that's all they had. But there's a smudge on there. I don't want to give too much of it away, but it's blood. And uh, and so we talk about a piece of paper being able to not only carry its message but deliver its message more than 10 years later. And just as I was finishing this book, uh, there was a, an identification made, and, and I was allowed to interview the survivors uh, of the, this heroic man who was trying to save lives up until the end. And uh, I realize it's a rather poignant way to end the book, but it also speaks for for me, for, for everyone, and, and, and the role of paper, the unexpected role and uses of paper here in the 21st century, happening as it did in the first full, full year of the third millennium. We have an email. We'll fit this in at the end of the program here. Um, and I mentioned the Crane Paper Mill of Dalton, Massachusetts, supplier of uh, paper for American currency. And Steve uh, has this, uh, he, he refers to that. He says, Crane not only makes paper for currency, but it also makes arguably the world's best writing stationery, a thick, and creamy... And I, I discuss that in the book, of course. Yeah, uh, he says it's, it's... You know, Crane, for over, they've been around for 200 years, 1801, and they've never used a tree. It's a, it's a tree-free operation. Uh, 75% cotton, 25% flax. Uh, and so it's a, these are renewable resources. They don't use trees in any of their, in any of their paper-making processes. American currency is basically rag paper. Hmm. Uh, uh, Steve goes on to say that uh, he mentions the distinctive crane watermark, and he asks a question, how does a papermaker create those watermarks? Well, that's a long story. <laughs> I don't know if we've got time for it, but the watermark is introduced in Italy in about the 13th century. They really didn't use it in, in Asia. But uh, we've mentioned the screen mold. If you put a little filament in there, uh, again, it's the fiber pass and the water passing through the screen. If you put a little design in there with a... With, with a it's like a little filament of wire. It'll leave a pattern that's uh, when the when the water uh, uh, drains and the and the fibers attach, and that's c called a watermark. I have a, a really extensive, very extensive discursive uh, endnote in the book that describes that whole process of watermarks. But it is fascinating, and 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 for people trying to determine who made paper, uh, when. Uh, dating it and what we call paper forensics, the watermarks become essential, essential tools for these uh, these forensic paper investigators. I discuss that in the book as well. We've been talking with Nicholas Basbanes. He's author most recently of On Paper, Everything of Its 2,000-Year History. And he'll be at Ken Sanders Rare Books this evening, 7 o'clock in Salt Lake City. Nicholas Basbanes, a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Tom. It's been a, very fun, a lot of fun. Thank you. And for producers Katie Swain and Bennett Purser, I'm Tom Williams. Thanks for listening today. 
As you know, NPR is airing a series on our national parks, which is very timely, as we were just in Grand Teton and Yellowstone with my visiting sister and brother-in-law. Commentator, Gina Wickwar. Mary had never been to either park, and Warren had last been when he was six. He is now 64. Vin and I hadn't seen Yellowstone in about seven years, so the whole expedition was one we all looked forward to very much. And, of course, it didn't disappoint. Heading out of Jackson, skirting the foothills bordering the hole's west flank, and coming upon the Tetons for the first time, or second, or hundredth, is something that sends chills down your spine. The day was warm, the sky blue, Jenny Lake sparkling, and tourists plentiful, though orderly and in awe of the beauty they were privileged to see. Many have waxed more creatively lapsodic than I can about those splendid peaks, the exquisite deep blue of Jackson and Yellowstone lakes, the thickly forested roads winding through the park, the vistas only God can create. Even the ravages of the 1988 fire, the smoke of which drifted down to Cloak Cache Valley 20 years ago, could not lessen the beauty of the scenes we passed. In fact, to see the carpet of new emerald green trees growing amidst the charred, skeletal stalks of the old growth was a powerful reminder of the Earth's ability to rejuvenate itself, reinforcing our sense of the timelessness and strength of this place. We headed first for Old Faithful because Mary simply had to see it. I, who had seen it many times, was just as excited to revisit the old geyser, the lodge, the surrounding mud holes. Just as we approached the lodge, Old Faithful erupted in watery splendor, and so we were able to see it from a distance, billowing steam and shooting water high into the air, and looking for all the world like the jet d'eau that spouts from the middle of Lake Geneva. After lunch at the lodge, a second close-up view of Old Faithful erupting, a walk around Geyser Hill via the boardwalk and hikes around the upper geyser basin groups in the Firehole River, we pushed north to Mammoth, to the exquisite travertine terraces that are so breathtakingly beautiful and unusual that you can't hardly believe they are naturally created by heat and water and minerals. Rather, they look as if an ancient Michelangelo had spent a millennium sculpting a marble stairway to the clouds. Oh, and the animals, the bison so close I could see the tiny eyes of an old thatched bull watching me suspiciously as he nibbled the high grass not 15 feet in front of me. So thick we counted 13 yellow calves and more cows than I've seen in one place. Or the elegant elk lying a mere 10 yards from the road, the afternoon sun backlighting the velvet on their antlers as they observed us with amusement, no doubt wondering why so many humans sport metallic appendages attached to their eyes or the moose, mother and baby, lying under some bushes and thinking they were invisible, but who could just be glimpsed by the alert tourists. The endless meadows carpeted with wildflower, and then the Grand Canyon of the Yellowstone, the jewel of the park, the torrential fall of water that cleaves the yellow and pink and green rocks as it plummets a thousand feet to the river below. Finally, the drive back to West Thumb in the setting sun, past the darkening waters of Yellowstone Lake, and as the sun set, the final push to Jackson in the dark, warily watching for animals, the surprise of a lone bison running alongside our car for a while, the two elk crossing the road in front of us illuminated just in time by our headlights, the black trees looming on either side of the road. And then, as we were dipping back into the hole, one of those grand thunderstorms that often break out over the Tetons with their jagged bolts of lightning, teeth-rattling thunder, and drops of rain so huge they render windshield wipers useless for miles. Yellowstone, our very, very first national park, and I think our very best. But then I say that about Yosemite, Zion, and the Grand Canyon, and all the other parks I have hiked during my lifetime. We are a lucky country to have had the foresight to have preserved these wild areas for our pleasure and for the pleasure of the generations that come after us. And National Public Radio is doing us all a great favor with its series, reminding us of our good fortune. Happy summer. This is Gina Wickwar. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. 
You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan.